Welcome to the 35th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Srinivas Ramachandran from the University of Colorado. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Srinivas, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you obtained a bachelor's in, in technology in industrial biotechnology at Anna University in Chennai, India in 2006. You then went on to UNC Chapel Hill, where you conducted your graduate research from 2006 to 2011 in the lab of Professor Nikolai Dokolian. I hope that's correct, in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. You then became interested in nucleosome structure and dynamics uh, towards the end of your PhD and headed to Steve Hennikoff's lab at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center for postdoc. And this started in 2012. Um, and finally, you started as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in January 2018. And you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, um, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then uh, pursuing a career in science? Yeah, uh, I uh, when I was growing up, I had like a uh, couple of major influences. Uh, one was my uncle, basically my uh, dad's sister's husband, and uh, who is an industrial engineer, and my Uh, granddad who was a soil chemist so basically in terms of uh, analytical thinking and thinking about you know generally how things work around you because I think all kids have a lot of questions all the time I can see that with my kids and uh, you uh, you can either like encourage it a lot or like you know day-to-day -day life is so hectic you might just say you know, stop asking questions. But uh, these two people in my life, they basically answered questions and asked more questions of me. So I could like really, uh, I enjoyed like just trying to think, okay, how does this work? Or how does day-to-day uh, -day stuff work? And I think around my ninth or 10th grade, we were like uh, reading a lot about um, genetic engineering. I think it had come into work or at least It became popular in the news at that time. And uh, that was very fascinating. And uh, when I was young, I was really interested in chemistry. I was good at it, maybe that's why. So uh, I met someone who basically told me that there is this uh, undergraduate course, which kind of combines uh, chemical engineering and biology. So it kind of combined this new found excitement in like genetic engineering and my interest in chemistry. So that's how I started in my um, undergraduate course. Basically, I really liked the curriculum. I applied for it and I got in. And uh, that was a great course because it had a lot of uh, engineering, math and uh, biology, like um, everything from genetics, biochemistry to uh, genomics, proteomics, bioinformatics. So kind of gave me a worldview of all the kinds of interesting things that were coming along at that time. And uh, I got really interested in um, uh, biophysics and biochemistry. That was like my um, uh, interest going forward, especially uh, early on um, in the undergraduate course, a lot of our seniors were going on to do PhDs. Um, Um, around the world. So it was very uh, good 
experience in the sense that we kind of knew what the options were to do after the undergrad. So um, I got some uh, research experience in one of the uh, really good research institutes in India, um, NCBS in Bangalore. And there, uh, the lab I worked in basically, uh, Dr. Uh, Marinalni Puranik was interested in uh, looking at um, biomolecules using um, uh, Raman spectroscopy. And it was like really cutting edge uh, equipment and research questions. And I learned a lot there. And so that further propelled me into biophysics because I loved spectroscopy, I loved biomolecular structure. And so uh, when I got uh, an acceptance from uh, University of North Carolina, I was really excited because I really liked their biophysics program. Um, it was highly interdisciplinary and their, uh, uh, they encouraged a um, lot of discussions between uh, theoretical and experimental scientists and the training was so, so also. So, yep, go ahead. Yes, so you are Indian. Uh, did you ever think of going back or, or do you plan to go back or uh, are you happy where you are right now? I mean, right now, right, uh, for sure, but in the future? Yeah, no, I think that, uh, so what drove um, my decisions to go to places was completely based on the kind of uh, science or scientific environment that I that I was aware of that I really wanted to do. So for example, when I was applying for PhD, I uh, really looked at uh, interdisciplinary programs and that was the main reason I really liked uh, Chapel Hill. And uh, towards the end of my PhD, I was looking at uh, uh, chromatin labs, again, doing interdisciplinary stuff. So I was really uh, drawn to uh, Steve Hennikoff's lab. And uh, when I was looking for jobs, so it's I kind of like the, the, the story is like, basically, I kind of see uh, where um, there is there are things that I'm that's really drawing me to that place. And it's not specifically restricted, but uh, it just so happened that it's been in the US. Yeah, and okay. uh, it's been really great here. So and that could also be because I'm not as uh, current or exposed to what's happening in other parts of the world. So in terms of research institutes, yeah. I mean, okay. so that so I'm guessing the answer is like it all depends on uh, opportunities. Like, yeah, exactly. Opportunity and like random collisions where you just get uh, excited uh, about something or some colleagues or some environment and you kind of go for that. Yeah. So yeah, you already mentioned your, your science and your uh, Steve Hennikoff's lab. So um, as a PhD student, you did not start out in chromatin first and epigenetics, uh, but you then switched to that area. What made you do the switch? Yeah, so uh, I actually, I mean, looking back, it seems very uh, obvious, but I was like, uh, and it basically when I look back, I realized why, but but even uh, so when I was an undergrad and I was applying to grad school, one of the things that really, like there are a couple of questions that drove my interest in biology, uh, somehow based on some readings and classes, right? So one was how uh, ion channels work. I was really, really interested in that. And the other question was how uh, protein recognition happens on the genome inside cells. So basically, you have the nucleus, you have all uh, proteins uh, at like high concentrations present there. 
and you have very specific recognition of sequences by DNA binding proteins. So I, those were the two kind of very big questions I was interested in getting into grad school. And it was great that I got to work on both of them, uh, mostly uh, computationally. So I was looking at ion channel function uh, uh, with uh, this really huge ion channel called ryanidine receptor. It's the biggest uh, ion channel, I think, uh, known it's almost like 5,000 or more than 5,000 residues and it's a tetramer. So it's like mega Dalton complex, just uh, uh, conducting calcium. And the other uh, thing uh, project, which was basically my thesis project was to look at what happens to DNA structure when um, there is a platinum adduct. So there are a lot of uh, platinum anti-cancer drugs in use uh, uh, like cisplatin, which basically uh, has resulted in cure for testicular cancer for many uh, men. Uh, and the way it works is basically it forms covalent adducts on DNA. So even though it's not like directly, like how do proteins recognize DNA, it was more like when the adduct was formed, the DNA goes into this conformation that helps uh, non-sequence uh, specific DNA binding protein bind to that uh, adduct like really strongly. And that's not because it's binding to platinum, but it's recognizing the change in conformation of DNA due to the platinum. So uh, that was my interest. And then um, uh, I think, uh, so most of that project was like looking at how protein DNA interactions are formed in this altered state. And kind of a corollary is that when you have nucleosomes being formed, the DNA does enter a very altered state because it's wrapping around uh, these histones. So, uh, and uh, at that time, uh, one of my colleagues, another grad student at the lab, um, Shantanu Sharma, he was like uh, uh, simulating nucleosomes with, uh, uh, like with coarse grain models uh, developed in the lab. And uh, around the time he left, there was a really interesting project. He had started, uh, in uh, collaboration with Brian Stroll, who is in UNC, is uh, basically uh, has um, like very well known in the chromatin field. Uh, so he, so I, we we were not a chromatin lab, but the question that kind of brought both the labs together was really cool. So uh, our lab, uh, my uh, advisor Nikolai, uh, has been had been interested for a long time in how uh, mutation rates in proteins are determined by the contribution of those residues to protein stability. So one of his early papers which was really beautiful is to show that uh, the stability conferred by a particular amino acid basically drives, uh, is, is correlates with how uh, conserved that amino acid is, especially if you look at protein uh, amino acids that are buried inside the protein. So they're not like contacting other proteins or the solvent. So, uh, and, uh, and, and a big question in uh, chromatin field for a long time has been that, oh wow, histones are like so well conserved. And like, you know, that's something really uh, beyond what you would see uh, in most proteins. Like it, if you look at most conserved proteins, it might be at the very top. So uh, Yeast uh, is a great system to study this because it has uh, most organisms have like many copies of histones, but yeast have only two copies and you can remove one of them. 
so you can easily make histone mutants in yeast and study their effects and uh, you could say that most of the surface residues or the histone tails may be important because either they are modified they bind chaperones or they bind other uh, molecule uh, other uh, cofactors or remodelers but uh, if a residue is completely buried inside the nucleosome then presumably it doesn't interact with other uh, proteins except with like other histones so our hypothesis was that um, basically uh, maybe histone fold is so perfect that um, only those amino acids will be allowed <laughs> Uh, that was like the naive hypothesis right so we could computationally uh, change the residues and ask what the consequences are and we found a few that had a huge uh, detrimental effect on nucleosome stability which we could verify with uh, um, the experiments performed in Brian Stroll's lab where in yeast we could show that these mutations resulted in um, loss of viability but what was really cool was that uh in histone h3 we couldn't see a correlation between um the stability conferred by an amino acid and how conserved it was we could see it in h4 we could see it in actin as a control and we could see like and uh, of course my uh, advisor had published before in many other proteins that you could see this in general like if you take a protein computationally you replace it with you take each amino acid and replace it with other amino acids you kind of see what's the effect on stability and if it's highly destabilizing you see you should see very less of it in evolution uh and that's but in h3 you basically see that it a particular residue might be contributing somewhat to stability but it was conserved way beyond how much that was so you could have let's say uh, isoleucine instead of leucine and have the same stability but you'll never see isoleucine there for example like i'm just making this up uh so uh we just basically published saying that you know these residues um so we can clearly predict the effect of stability on the uh, on, on uh, yeast viability but uh, taking it a step further we can't really see the correlation between um evolutionary conservation and stability for h3 we could see it in h4 and other proteins so there might be some other uh function or some other pressure on these uh, residues that are buried so kind of that project married what i was doing uh, before which is like looking at protein stability modeling um, protein dna complexes with chromatin and uh, around like the thinking for me at that time was that uh, we can we know a lot about uh, structure and uh, dynamics of nucleosomes and how proteins interact with nucleosomes uh from like really amazing structural and biochemical studies but uh one thing that you need to kind of completely translate those findings into what happens in the cell is to kind of say okay that works in a few sequences because you can you can think of many sequences you can do the experiments on but you cannot think of the billions of sequences that nucleosomes are forming in all different cells and organisms so uh we need a way to generalize whatever we know about nucleosome structure to any sequence that can form a nucleosome in uh, different genomes and i thought that the best way to do that would be to kind of use uh, all the um assays that 
that have been used for looking at nucleosome positions, but as a probe for nucleosome structure. Um, and I mean, and this is not like I didn't like come up with it. Like people think about this, but uh, uh, the basic idea was to go back to existing data sets and start asking, how do we say which um, contacts in the nucleosomes are there or not? That's the basic, uh, like very stripped down version. And uh, so when I uh, applied to uh, Steve Hennikoff, my like the idea that I proposed to him was that, uh, so one thing is like, you know, how does nucleosome form on every sequence possible in the genome? But the other is that uh, the place to kind of capture this is during replication. Um, because you, uh, when the polymerase goes through, you're starting with uh, naked DNA. And uh, like that's the place to study nucleosome assembly. And this is, again, it's been done uh, really well with a lot of different techniques for decades. Uh, so, uh, and I think that kind of uh, idea really um, was really interesting to him also. So kind of we had a, we kind of um, met at a similar frequency. And so my starting off, my idea was to kind of do this uh, kind of thinking on like you know, existing data sets. How do you think about nucleosome structure from sequencing data, but also work on this uh, experimental idea of trying to map nucleosome intermediates formed uh, during replication. So before that, uh, I had done a uh, lot of uh, biophysics in my undergrad, like basically uh, laser spectroscopy. So you know, purified ind ingredient, like small molecules, like riboflavin and atoxoguanine. Uh, so you buy the chemicals, resuspend them and do the spectra. Uh, but I hadn't done any uh, molecular biology or biochemical experiments. So most of my uh, uh, PhD I would say all of my PhD was basically doing simulations and analysis. I worked a lot, uh, very closely with experimental uh, biologists because uh, uh, the ethos of uh, my PhD lab was to kind of collaborate with experimental labs. So you kind of ask questions they can in the simulations that they can actually test in their own labs. So we could kind of have a back and forth where our models are not going to be perfect, but based on the results they have, we keep refining the computational models. So. I could uh, think about experiments. I could like kind of uh, look at experimental data, but hands-on, I've never done it, right? So I kind of came up with a plan uh, of how to capture these nucleosomal intermediates uh, using like cross-linking and metabolic labeling uh, during replication. But uh, uh, when I started, uh, I was like, so it's almost like you're like a, uh, an undergraduate undergraduate researcher or a first year graduate student, but like first time in the lab, but but actually you're a postdoc, right? So it's kind of a weird place because you can't uh, expect the same level of um, handholding that you would expect for a person who is coming first time to the lab. And it was really interesting because uh, Steve just told me, your plan looks great, just go do it. <laughs> So uh, I just like asked anyone like around uh, in the lab, like, oh, how do you do a Western lot? Or uh, how do you grow cells? And everyone was really helpful, uh, both at um, in the lab and at uh, Fred Hutch, like all the nearby labs. 
the first paper that came out of that was um, maybe this, that model cell paper in 2014, where I looked at uh, like the interaction of the polymerase and the influence of H2AZ or H2AZ. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> so how do nucleosome influence RNA pol 2 and what is the role of H2AZ in, in, in that context? Yeah. So um, it was. So I think that uh, the the really nice uh, thread that has kind of runs through my um, like all the way from my undergrad to now is that I just had really nice colleagues uh, who asked really interesting questions, so I could kind of learn from them and kind of contribute my knowledge to them. So when I joined uh, Steve's lab, uh, I had really I'd seen this really cool paper uh, from uh, from the lab a few years before. Uh, from uh, Chris Weber as the first author, where he basically they devised this really cool way to uh, have like two different epitope tagged uh, histone variant H2AZ, uh, so that they're asking, so there are two H2As in a nucleosome, um, and you can ask if so the it, histone variants basically uh, replace canonical histones uh, outside of replication. And you can ask if uh, most nucleosomes have one H2AZ or two H2AZs, um, just to uh, mm -hmm. that has implications on how the uh, um, the variants are replaced and what it uh, what does it mean uh, basically to have two two of them, and also uh, the structure from Caroline Luger's lab with H2AZ um, variant had shown that there was this loop that was in a really different position with H2AZ compared to H2A. And they had speculated that if you have an H2AZ, H2A, that might not be very, uh, like based on H2A structure and H2AZ structure, there might be some um, instability when you have an H2AZ and H2A. So it becomes really interesting to test that hypothesis, I think. Uh, I'm just like trying to think what could be the, the main reason. So that, uh, and the, uh, so they, had two different versions of H2AZ expressed in Drosophila cells. Then they uh, pulled down one epitope, took the stuff, uh, the chromatin that was pulled down, and then performed the second pull down. So now they have the map of all places where you yeah, have both of them, both two H2AZs, or they have one H2AZ and one H2A, because they did that with H2AZ, H2A also. They found that um, the plus one the first nucleosome downstream of transcription start site was enriched for uh, what is called the homotypic H2AZ. So both of the H2As are replaced by H2AZs. And it also okay. correlated with active genes. And it seemed to correlate with how much, uh, like, you know, polymerase is going through, maybe disrupting the histones and it's getting replaced with the variants. That, um, so uh, the follow up to that, uh, that Chris was doing was asking, okay, if that is the hypothesis, then I want to directly ask what happens to transcription when you don't have H2AZ. Um, so, so if you can't, can't replace the H2A after transcription took place. Yes. So if you have, so um, even a step further. So if your template has only H2A or right, so then is uh, polymerase going through differently compared to the normal circumstance where you have H2AZ and H2A. Uh, so. So he, uh, so before that, there was a really cool paper from uh, Sterling Churchman, like NetSeq, 
was described in yeast where it was beautiful like you can pull down um polymer rna polymerase natively and then um sequence the rna uh, that was bound to it to get the three prime position of the polymerase uh, so you get a base pair resolution of where rna pol2 was sitting on chromatin and he was trying to adapt it to drosophila cells and uh, actually he had finished bulk like the most difficult part of it before i joined the lab which was to basically figure out how to do this and he figured out that it was almost uh, so po- rna polymerase uh, was really insoluble so he couldn't get all of it um, due with a pull down so instead he basically really uh, purified uh, chromatin um, with like tons of washes where you could basically get all the unbound stuff out and then he found that all the three prime ends uh, of rnas from that chromatin pellet that mapped to genes basically corresponded to uh, where rna polymerase was stored uh, so uh, he had got this beautiful data and then he had a system where he uh, either knocked down h2az or he knocked down yl1 which is involved in deposition of h2az so two different ways to reduce the num- amount of h2az in the coding regions and uh, performed poly- uh, rna polymerase uh, mapping in uh, without knockdown and with knockdown so and this was perfect because uh, he was like trying to answer this question of what is the effect of h2az on polymerase and i was just like starting to look at uh, the sequencing data sets to ask like how can we think about it in terms of uh, nucleosome structure so what i really helped out in the study was coming in um, like finding out where the first nucleosome was downstream to the polymerase and then just we chris and i mapped uh, polymerase after um, setting um, the first nucleosome as the uh reference point so instead of looking at transcription start sites which is what you mostly do when you're looking at transcription mm-hmm. we said we'll look at first nucleosome as the re- like kind of a reference point and it was beautiful because uh, i still remember making that plot uh, with chris and you basically you draw the you arrange genes based on how far they are from uh, how far that nucleosome is from the transcription start site and you kind of different genes have different positions uh, of the first nucleosome so you kind of have like a nice sigmoidal uh, gra- line that represents the first nucleosome position and all the polymerases lined up either in front of like either near the start site or in front of the nucleosome so basically you had a huge uh, density of nu- uh, polymerases right at the entrance of the nucleosome and then it fell off sharply so we could see that the way uh, polymerase was stalling in drosophila was very different from what was seen in yeast because in yeast uh, what the original netseq paper had shown was that the, the nucleosome diet so the middle of the nucleosome was the biggest uh, stall point and uh, it, it made sense because in yeast the nucleosome is over so the transcription start site is a uh, few base pairs within the uh, first nucleosome so you can think of uh, having a nucleosome and uh, 
you have to unwrap it a few base pairs to get to the transcription start site. So just for the pre-initiation complex to um, assemble on a nucleosome, you have to like unwrap the nucleosome in yeast. But in Drosophila and like uh, human cells, when you look at the nucleosome position, most of the nucleosomes are 100 to 150 base pairs away from the start site. So uh, let's just imagine that, so the half nucleosome is 73 base pairs. So any distance more than 73 base pairs from the start site means there is gap between the start site and the nucleosome where polymerase can just sit. Uh, and polymerase usually has a footprint of 30 base pairs. So you can think that in, in uh, Drosophila or human cells, Polymerase can sit on the start site and start transcribing before it comes to a barrier. Um, and uh, then when it comes to a barrier, it seems like most of the nucleosomes kind of st stop at the beginning of the barrier. Uh, so, and that you could clearly see, uh, so how much ever gap you had between the transcription start site and the start of the nucleosome, that gap was filled by polymerases. So that, that was very gratifying. And then uh, what we saw was that when you, um, when you remove or when you knock down H2AZ or when you reduce amount of H2AZ by knocking down uh, the YL1, which like helps in loading of H2AZ, what you see is that the barrier for uh, RNA polymerase, the barrier set by the nucleosome actually is higher compared to when H2AZ is present, okay. which okay. Uh, led us to conclude that H2AZ basically uh, helps in easier passage of polymerase compared to uh, H2A. Does it also influence DNA damage? Because H2AZ is also involved in DNA damage, right? So if you have less H2AZ, does it mean that DNA gets more damaged? Yeah, I. Uh, so that's really interesting in uh, Drosophila because in Drosophila, the variant is called H2AV. Um, yeah, and basically, it combines the H2AZ, which is, uh, uh, which we are talking about and H2AX, which gets phosphorylated around uh, and deposited and phosphorylated on DNA damage sites. So in principle, yeah, it should, it could. Uh, and uh, we like, we didn't, we didn't really look at it. Uh, but that, okay. that yeah. was a really interesting question. Yeah. Especially in Drosophila, where both the functions have kind of come together in a single yeah. variant. You then also looked at what happens to a nucleosome after the polymerase has passed. Uh, for that, you developed a new method called MINT-seq, or how you pronounce yeah, it. Um, yep, yep MINT-seq. So, yeah. uh, how does it, yeah. <laughs> Just to finish my question, how does this uh, work and uh, what uh, did it enable you to find? Yeah, so uh, this goes back to the original. Uh, like kind of project I pitched to Steve when I started basically to look at nucleosome assembly. And I uh, first envisioned doing some biochemical analysis of uh, newly deposited histones, but um, the amount of material is very low. But what I did find out was that I could uh, label um, newly replicated nucleosomes uh, very efficiently. So uh, kind of we changed around the question. So the question was now that instead of looking at how um, nucleosome assembles to ask what is the nucleosome landscape right after replication compared to steady state. And uh, the idea is really simple. So 
like i talked to you about like mapping nucleosomes very uh, nicely with uh, nuclease based assays so that part we kind of carried over so you map uh, and the other thing kind of we didn't talk about is that with uh, micrococcal nucleus if you look at really short fragments that are generated they basically tell you where transcription factors are bound uh, so i'm talking about like less than 50 base pair protected dna so we could get a map of nucleosomes and transcription factors from a single assay and then when we add uh, edu which is a nucleotide analog for thymidine um, it's going to uh, be incorporated only uh, in places where there is new dna synthesis and uh, you can then use click chemistry to add biotin to edu um, and then uh, you would pull down that biotinylated dna with streptavidin so you you can purify only the dna that is uh, newly replicated but if you were to uh, like crosslink the cells and treat uh, the cells with uh, micrococcal nuclease before you do the pull down you basically get uh, nucleosomes and transcription factor maps of the newly replicated dna mm-hmm. so you you first like uh, label all the new dna then you do the uh, cross linking and uh, nucleus treatment so you basically get particles like either nucleosomes or factors that can either be bound to like you know bulk dna which is not modified or to uh, dna that has biotin on it so then when you sequence the bulk dna and compare it to the sequencing of the uh, dna that had biotin on it you basically ask where the nucleosomes were on steady state and then where the nucleosomes are right after replication uh so we kind of we label for uh, 10 minutes and uh if you think about uh, an average uh, replication fork speed of 2 uh kb per minute so you're basically getting 20 kilobases within the replication fork when you label for 10 minutes so you're getting um the nucleosome transcription factor landscape with like around 20 kilobases within the fork and then if you were to do a thymidine chase then that thing, imagine that 20 kb is just maturing over time so you wait for an hour you basically can capture what happened in that uh, region uh, in terms of the nucleosome landscape after an hour uh, of different remodelers acting on that region uh and uh so the basic question is okay i have stripped off all the proteins on dna and then the proteins are going to come back uh, uh is it going to be nucleosomes or transcription factors that come back first so if you have a transcription factor binding site you have completely stripped the transcription factor out now transcription factor doesn't have to in most cases protect like large regions of dna like one like it has to protect like 10 or 20 base pairs of dna compared to 150 base pairs for nucleosome and nucleosome has to wrap the dna around it it has multiple subunits so you would think transcription factors have much easier time binding dna compared to forming a nucleosome but what we found was that in most places where transcription factors bind like promoters and enhancers um we lost the factors right after replication but what came back was uh, nucleosomes and uh basically that was really uh, striking because that meant that all the distinct 
chromatin landscape you had uh, you when, whenever you do a mapping steady state mapping of cells where you have like nucleosome depletion at promoters you have like nice transcription factor binding at promoters and at enhancers are actually like highly uh, dynamic and you have a state where all of them are completely uh, lost at least like within uh, an hour after replication because right after 10 minutes you see nucleosomes and when you do a chase for an hour you start seeing uh, the transcription factors come back but it's not 100% um, so the question that that comes to my mind is: Do the nucleosomes really leave the DNA, or are there maybe parts that still stay on the DNA? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so our assay basically doesn't uh, uh, directly answer that. Like basically, if you look at a snapshot, like you're just basically doing a snapshot before and after replication. But uh, I think so. There are. Other assays which have shown that you can basically completely uh, remove the nucleosome. So the first one to think about is, uh, so there is a beautiful structure of the helicase where uh, you can see there's just a single strand of DNA going through it. So if you look at the pore through which the DNA is going through, uh, no histone is going to go through that pore. So for the helicase to kind of move through the nucleosome, it has to remove the the histones from the DNA. Mm. Um, and uh, the other cool thing is that the helicase also has uh, uh, unstructured tail that basically can bind uh, histones and transfer them behind the fork. So it basically kind of can think of the helicase as uh, unraveling the DNA, but in front of it, it's also capturing the uh, histones that are released because of the positive torsion created by unraveling the DNA and then putting those uh, histones back behind the replication fork. Uh, and uh, we know from um, we, um, like beautiful mass spec experiments that, and overall, like when you're doubling the DNA, you need to have double the histones. And you, you know from mass spec experiments that you have half old histones and half new histones in the new. Um, newly replicated chromatin. So you have to have uh, formation of new nucleosomes after replication. So we should all argue that you are starting from a naked DNA and assembling whatever complexes behind the fork uh, from scratch. So one thing we did find that was driving this uh, uh, nucleosome formation at all sites, including like transcription factor binding sites, was that uh, that is the histone chaperones uh, that are associated with replication, the CAF1 complex uh, is known to like travel with the four because it can bind the PCNA, which is the clamp that's behind the polymerase. And when we knock down component of CAF1, basically we could see that uh, we can recreate the nucleosome depletion after replication. So it, it was not as full of nucleosomes as we saw in like wild type cells, which would uh, argue that basically the CAF1 complex by traveling with the fork is quickly depositing the nucleosomes before uh, transcription factors can bind. Okay. So how does then the replication compare to transcription? I mean, other than that you lose, that you need the double amount of histones, but I mean... Uh... So no, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question, right? And we know from... Uh, 
uh, biochemical experiments that you could basically uh, like so RNA polymerase can transcribe through the nucleosome without all the histones being lost. So that is a huge difference because it doesn't have a helicase in front of it, kind of unwrapping the DNA for it. Uh, polymerase is doing it by itself with elongation factors, but still it's not like having something that's um, as strong as a helicase. Uh, it has like other, like it has remodelers and chaperones helping it out. So, so that is a huge question. And I think that, uh, so the experiments where we know that there is uh, histones lost during transcription come from uh, where you uh, where the histones are metabolically labeled. And this was done uh, in Steve's lab and other labs also where you look at histone turnover uh, where um, mostly uh, outside of replication. And what you see is that uh, the turnover is correlation correlates with amount of transcription, which would mean that there is a regular loss of histones when you have transcription. So this is the turnover of histone H3, um, which is kind of in the uh, middle of the nucleosome, but also imaging studies have shown that uh, H2A, H2B turnover uh, much faster than H3, H4. Uh, so it, it was not known for some time that the histones uh, are lost during transcription but also that you could have transcription, some rounds of transcription where histones are not lost. So we kind of uh, uh, tried to address that with our next study where my main question was, can you actually map uh, the intermediates uh, formed during transcription? So, and the logic was uh, quite simple. So you could do metabolic labeling to capture newly replicated chromatin, but uh, like since the DNA doesn't change when you do transcription, yeah. you can't really label and they kind of get the kinetics directly. There might be other methods where you uh, kind of start transcription and catch it after that. Uh, but another way to think about uh, this problem would be basically like, if you know all the states that are present um, in your chromatin, then um, instead of basically, uh, looking at a process in time, you can kind of try to recreate that process. So um, the, it, it kind of like the, the analogy is uh, ergodic principle where you basically can say that you can look at one molecule for a long time. So you can make a movie and see what all it does, or you can look at a thousand or million molecules for a single time point and th that molecule would have been in all the different conformation in those million examples. Mm -hmm. So you don't have kinetics explicitly, but because you're capturing all the states, uh, you kind of can recreate it. And that's exactly what you get from uh, sequencing, because let's say you are adding your nuclease, the nucleus is gonna cut the cells when they're in different states of transcription, and you're basically sampling uh, all the different states uh, in a single uh, snapshot. Uh, so that would mean that if you look at each uh, species that's generated due to this nucleus activity, that represents a different state of the nucleosome. So um, in general, when you do micrococal nucleus analysis, you kind of cut out, uh, so you treat the nuclei, you purify the DNA, and you most times like cut out the DNA band that corresponds to 147 base pairs and sequence that because you're asking where the nucleosome, full nucleosomes are. 
but if you sequence all lengths you start seeing that there are lengths that are like between 50, 50 less than 50 we talked about like mostly represent transcription factor binding sites but there are like peaks all the way from 50 to uh 135 uh, base pairs which represents different uh, states of the nucleosome so they are like unwrapping at different levels um that was a hypothesis so what we did was just take each of those uh, fragment peaks um so let's say you find like 135 base pair fragments or uh, 125 or like uh, 103 base pair fragments or 90 base pair fragments and then you can ask where they map relative to the 147 base pairs so i know where the full nucleosome maps where do the short fragments map especially in the plus 1 nucleosome where we know most of the rna polymerase is hitting the nucleosome and what we saw was really beautiful you basically are removing discrete sets of nucleosome contacts when you uh, see these uh, shorter fragments so for example the 90 base pairs and the 103 base pairs are the really interesting ones because there you are removing all the contacts that would correspond to an h2a h2b dimer so either you are removing the h2a h2b dimer contacts proximal to the promoter or distal to the promoter and because you are sequencing the dna you know if the dna that's like let's say 90 base pairs is on the left side of the 147 or the right side of the 147 so if it's oh, on the so left, which which end gets unstable yep exactly so we know which end has lost the contacts based on that um and then so now you have a map of all structural states of chromat of nucleosome as revealed by the dna fragments first the fragment lengths and second where they map relative to the full nucleosome and we could uh, then correlate that to uh, transcription so if you have uh, the rna polymerase in a gene just by random sampling in front of the nucleosome versus in the middle of the nucleosome you can ask how the uh, intermediates change and what you see is that uh, when the polymerase hits the nucleosome it seems like the first dimer contacts are lost so you're unwrapping in front of the nucleosome and then when polymerase goes through the predominant species are where the pr- proximal dimer contacts are uh, back again but the distal contacts are lost so you can think of it as like um, you're peeling the nucleosome in the front polymerase goes through and the nuclear dna comes back and then you're peeling the dna from the back of so the like wave going through the nucleosome exactly yep and uh, so this was our hypothesis that when you are, when the polymerase stalls in front of the nucleosome you mostly lose the proximal uh, h2a h2b contacts but uh, when the nucleosome when the polymerase elongates through the so there is elongation uh, transcription elongation then you bo- mo- mostly lose the distal uh, contacts and uh, it's really beautiful because i think it coincided with uh, after our study came out there was this beautiful paper in uh, nsmb where they uh, captured uh, nu- nucleosomes in vitro in cryo em with various states where they could show the unwrapped states uh, of the nucleosome itself and then after that uh, there were structural studies with uh, polymerase and the nucleosome by cryo em 
where they could show the again where they could show polymerase at various positions and the nucleosome unwrapping so we could see that whatever I'm we saw what you showed yeah in cell so yeah. yeah so in the last 50 minutes already uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career uh, can you maybe give us a short summary about your maybe most important findings or something that you might have missed uh, in this uh, in this journey uh Let's see. So I guess the main uh, kind of um, to the main thread that goes through uh, these studies is the fact that um, we have basically a really powerful tool in terms of uh, sequencing, um, like next generation, like short read, massively parallel sequencing, which we can use as a biochemical probe for chromatin. And uh, I think. Uh, the one thing that hope hopefully my uh, what i would like to convey is that like chromatin like the dynamics has to be considered when we are mapping chromatin and we have to basically ask we are getting a static snapshot but what could be all the dynamic events that might be happening behind the scenes that lead to a static snapshot um and uh so either we can incorporate that by explicitly using time like we do with uh, metabolic labeling or if we can't explicitly incorporate time into our experiments we can then try to capture all the states and try to at least model what the different uh, kinetic states could be in chromatin so that's the basic idea for the lab so use a, a more a pro um, yeah more advanced analysis of the data that are already generated right like uh, see how long are the reads and and what can be learned from that yep exactly yeah uh, there is like so much uh, data out there that's like very high quality that we can ask new questions with that's that's a big uh, part of our uh, research philosophy for sure okay thank you uh, srinivas for uh, that interview and for being part of the show mm -hmm. thank you This was the 35th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews, comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.